Welcome to The Professor and the Hack, episode 137. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and with me is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. How are you, Pete? G'day, Hugh. Good to be talking to you. We've got an election coming up in a matter of days, Victorian election. If you're not in Victoria, though, you don't see that much media about it. Unusually, I think, from, you know, in years gone by. Yeah, especially seeing it's high profile and Dan Andrews became essentially a national figure, not just a parochial one during COVID. It's funny, isn't it? Because I don't live in Victoria. The sense of it is that he was much admired by many and divisive in the way in which he managed the COVID lockdown. And under normal circumstances, you'd think after something so bruising, you know, some paint would come off. It might be time for a change of government. These are the sort of the cycles of things. You've been in Victoria taking a look. What's your judgment? Yeah, I managed to pop down there just for a full day and have, you know, various sort of coffees and meetings and chats with people on both sides of the political spectrum. I get the impression, and when I say I get the impression, I mean, this is almost a universally agreed view amongst these different players with different partisan stripes, at least when they talk privately. The impression is that voters wouldn't mind getting rid of Dan Andrews. The Labor Party wouldn't mind getting rid of Dan Andrews. But the Labor Party doesn't think that they could have won with anyone other than Dan Andrews, certainly if they went through the bloodletting of removing him. So they're sticking with him. The public will vote him back in, even if Labor then looks to move on from him at some time in the next few years in what they will potentially at least try to optically orchestrate as a bloodless coup rather than a bloody one. But the public will stick with him, even though they wouldn't mind a change, because there was no one else in Labor to go to. The opposition are still a mess. Matthew Guy uh, has all sorts of fingerprints of, of concerns around him. And he doesn't have much of a team around him, to say the least. There could well be a surge in third-party vote, whether it's Greens, Teals, other types of independents and crossbenchers. It's possible that Dan Andrews loses his majority, even if he retains government, although I'm hearing it's more likely he holds his majority rather than loses it. But either of those scenarios don't involve the capacity for the Liberals or the Coalition to cobble together a majority in the eyes of people, even though Dan Andrews is losing a little bit of steam as he gets closer to the finish line. He's far enough in front and the Liberals are enough of a mess that nobody wants to go to them. So that, that that's the sort of impression out of Victoria. You know, it's, it's a case of sticking with the devil you know, rather than moving to, I guess, in a sense, what you know is a bit of a dysfunctional opposition and putting them in charge of the, the state's finances and so forth. Yeah, it'd be wrong to kind of expect too much of Matthew Guy on the Liberal side because he's now been around for quite a while and he just, um, both he and the party just seems such a, a bloody mess. And, mm. you know, Melbourne is the most Liberal in a small L sense capital city. You know, we make the argument for Canberra, I suppose, but that's almost a class apart. And so that sort of, um, yeah, there's still the taint of those African gangs race baiting warnings from elections past. And some of his candidates, um, you wouldn't want to touch with a barge pole, you know, have turned up with all kinds of racist and really quite disturbing views. Yeah, you wouldn't think that would play too well in, in Melbourne. But yeah, I do recall, though, I, I was there when Steve Brax won over Jeff Kennett. And Kennett had been there, you know, he, he kind of, he stalked Victoria like a leviathan when he was in office. He was by far the biggest personality. He seemed destined to be returned. And then he was kicked out to a Labour bloke who people didn't know much about. But it just is a reminder that states more than federal election results can tend to swing, tend to have an element of volatility 
people don't feel necessarily quite so much as at stake, perhaps. And so they'll, you know, there's still a slight element of anything could happen in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, I guess anything can happen, but it's long odds for the Liberals to find a way, partly because of where they're starting. They've got a pretty small number of seats to begin with. So they have to do very well electorally to be in the hunt for majority government or even minority government with a large crossbench. So that's its own issue. And, you know, Matthew Guy's been around before, but he's not sort of Steve Brack's inoffensive uh, as he was at the time uh, vis-a-vis Jeff Kennett. The, the interesting thing, though, was, I mean, as you well recall, at that election that Jeff Kennett lost, the regions turned on him mm. in particular. So it was the National Party as well as regional liberals who really suffered and, and gave Labor the impetus for, for that win. I don't have a handle at this point on where the seat configuration sits in terms of what may or may not happen on Saturday night. I do think, though, that one of the problems for the Liberals, of course, is is emblematic for the problem that they suffered federally, which is that in this campaign, they've had to fight a war on two fronts against Teals and the like, as well as uh, against the Labor Party. It will be interesting to see whether that Teal phenomena at the federal level translates at a state election. Uh, certainly, there's been a lot of talking up amongst some of the researchers within the Teal movement about their chances to do well, and they may be right. But there's also been an interesting, I hear, behind the scenes discussion that some of the federal Teals haven't exactly been enamoured by the sort of proliferation of the campaign interstate politics for various reasons. Now, they may well do well because one thing I think we can say, irrespective of whether it translates into the winning seats, or whether it's a teal vote or or other versions of the crossbench vote. One thing I think we can say, though, is that there is major party fatigue amongst voters, which we saw federally, which I think we'll see again at the state level. Whether it results in seat changes is, you know, sort of in a sense up to the extent of it and up to the electoral system. But I I do feel like voters, and, and this is a phenomenon that's been happening for a while across Western politics, but also particularly here in Australia, that they, they have a level of fatigue with those major parties, you know, and that they're looking for alternatives, whether they're happy with the alternatives on offer. So all parties are going to be watching this with a perhaps a, a, a sense of a whiff of mortality in this, because if the trend away from major parties continues, then uh, there, there is that sort of much forecast, but uh, until the last federal election, not really manifest uh, trend away from major parties. We'll see how much that grips up. It's funny, isn't it, Hugh? Like, I remember... You know, first year politics, you know, learning about the rigidity of the two party system in Australia. And a fellow called Ian Marsh wrote a book called Beyond the Two Party System, where he was trying to sort of speculate on ways that it could, you know, basically become a thing of the past. But that now was over 30 years ago that he wrote that, or around 30 years ago. And, you know, it's, it's been long speculated that, that we would move past it. And there have been lots of moments, as you point out, the last election's probably been the strongest uh, in history. But it's so powerful with ingrained incumbency advantage and all the rest of it that the parties find ways to claw it back at different points in time. We'll see if if that happens in the years to come or if this has become a seismic shift. One thing, I mean, this is a whole other podcast, but one thing that I think could mean that it is a seismic shift going forward is that I think that generationally that dealignment from major parties, not just disillusionment from one particular electoral cycle to the next, the generational dealignment that we've seen, where voters no longer rigidly identify with one side or the other, they are prepared to flip and move based on issues, that could be the impetus 
in conjunction with all the things that political scientists have written about for decades as possible factors that bring about an end of the two-party system. But we have the most rigid two-party system in the world, which a lot of people might not realise, you know, in, I mean, as you would know, in countries like the United States, you vote against your party. In the UK, you can vote against your party to some extent. In Australia, you know, you, in theory, you get kicked out of the Labor Party if you vote against it. It's actually against the rules officially. And in the Liberal Party, even if it's not officially against the rules, it's certainly a career killer. Mm. On the rigidity of the two-party system, Simon Holmes, the court, recently wrote a, a, sh- a small book, but point out to, to something which I, I sort of overlooked in terms of the resilience of the two-party system, and that is the value of the money that flows in from the Electoral Commission in seats because you get paid per vote. Mm. And you know most elections are decided, as we know, in those handful of seats, the 20, 30-odd seats that might shift one way or the other over time. And so they don't have to compete too hard in most of the rest of those seats, but they accrue money for every vote that they get from the Electoral Commission. And that becomes the bank that then is used by the major parties in those seats where they do need to win. And the Teals or any other independents have no such access to funds. That's why they have to go outside to get funds, grassroots campaigning, the occasional wealthy individual like a Holmes Accord. So still the finances are canted against independence. And he says that that makes it still a much bigger ass than people realize and a much bigger achievement when an independent gets up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, he's, he's certainly right. The funding structure, you know, I mean, the figures won't be exact, but roughly two bucks a vote, as long as you get over a threshold of around, I think it's 4% or higher in the vote, you'll then get two bucks per vote that you get. And, you know, the major parties obviously get over 4% in, even in safe seats of the other side. That's why they run candidates, not just to try to boost their Senate vote, where they also then get money per vote as well, by the way, we should add. So it, it's certainly that sort of a system, quite apart from incumbency advantages around you know, fundraisers with ministers or shadow ministers who might be potential ministers and all the rest of it, that's its own incumbency advantage. You know, access to the apparatus of states, another incumbency advantage, access to traditional media, there's another one. But yeah, that funding advantage for those who are already there is, is pretty significant. The independents you know, who are obviously getting more than 4%, they get that as a sort of rebate funding. For a while there, there was the, the suggestion was that Pauline Hanson was running at elections that she knew she couldn't win, but she could meet the threshold target for simply to try to pocket the cash out the other side of the electoral cycle. Because, you know, you think about it, if, you, even if, you're just, if you're running for a statewide franchise like the Upper House in New South Wales, firstly, you're likely to win because it's like 4.5% of the vote to get a seat. But if you get past that threshold, you know, you pick up 50,000 votes or something, that's 100 grand right there based on, on the rough calculations. So the major parties have all sorts of benefits in that sense. But the, the, the Teals get that money back. You know, if they know that they're going to win a certain percentage of the vote, let's say 30% of the vote in a 100,000 person electorate, they know they're going to walk away with 60K after the election. So they can borrow against that beforehand. But you're right. Getting it in the first place, you know, lines of credit, that's partly what the major parties do, quite apart from all their fundraising. You know, they, they have these lines of credits that have been established with banks where they get millions of dollars waiting for the return that they get out the other side of the election. And even though they have all the advantages that Simon Holmes Accord talks about, they are actually feeling the pinch a little bit with the decline of their primary vote because that, that advantage, while still there, isn't quite as advantageous as it once was. You know, there's sort of a whole of a few million dollars when their primary vote goes down from what their party directors might have been banking on 
when planning their big advertising campaigns. It's a really interesting space, I think. Absolutely. Another interesting space is how is the uh, parliamentary year going to wind up some major bits of uh, legislation? Not yet quite across the line. Let's take a quick break. Back in just a second. Welcome back. You're listening to episode 137 of The Professor and the Hack, and I'm with the prof, Peter Van Onselen. Parliament is about to wind up. Will it wind up anytime soon? Because there's legislation the government needs to get across the line, most notably the industrial relations legislation. Give us the quick how that one is going. It is going to pass, isn't it? In some form, it's going to pass. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's going to pass. I mean, David Pocock is the, the key vote. In theory, he could hold it up, and therefore it doesn't pass. But I would have thought he will either buckle sufficiently that it passes, or if he doesn't buckle, I think that Labor will buckle in the way that they'll amend the bill just to get it passed, even if they don't get everything that they want. Because what Labor wants the most is to get the IR laws legislated and, and passed before the end of this year. They've already talked about extending sittings. I don't think they'll extend them into another week, but Friday sittings, which are not normal, are likely, you know, including in the final sitting week, because they've got other legislation to get through as well, such as getting ICAC passed, that's become less contentious, almost surprisingly, and that will pass. But it's the IR one that's the, the tougher one to see exactly where it lands. But certainly Pocock is pretty rigid at the moment with his interest in wanting to make sure that multi-employer bargaining gets a few amendments. You know, the size of a small business that is subjected to it. He, he wants to see the, you know, that go up and, and not be two smaller businesses that might be hit by it. Uh, Labor's fighting him on that, but ultimately one of them will buckle. We'll just have to wait and see. It's interesting that Pocock basically took Zedsa Selger's seat in Canberra, the Liberal Party's seat. Mm. So he will be mindful that he doesn't want to offend essentially Liberal-leaning voters because he'll need them next time around. Well, yeah, that's true, but he's, he's sort of a little bit He's an interesting one on that front because absolutely he's taken the seat of Zed, but because in the ACT they've only got the two seats and Labor has always got the massive lion's share of the vote, but not enough to take both seats, so therefore the Liberals always sort of just scamper in for the second one. Pocock's support comes from both his left and his right flank. You know, he sort of picks up the disaffected left of Labor, sort of green elements and so forth, including on preference flows. But he also then, as you say, had to have taken a chunk of votes off the, those conservatives on the Zedzazelja side. So balancing that for him, I think there's really only one way for him to balance that, which is what I think he's trying to do, which is just be a combination of true to himself and prepared to fight on issues, whether they sit on the left or the right of the political spectrum debate. And this IR debate clearly sits on the right, and he's fighting the good fight He's fought plenty of other fights on the left as well. We know he's a strong environmentalist. There was a lot of speculation he might join the Greens, but in the end, he didn't. So, yeah, it's really, it's going to be interesting to see how this works out for him in six years' time if he decides to run again. At the moment, he's really impressing me, I have to say. It's only three years, isn't it? Yeah, for the... Um... Oh, sorry, you're right. It is only three years for the ACT. Mate, my mistake. But it will even more interesting then to see how he goes after just one term. But what I find... I mean, I have to say, he's really impressing me as a crossbencher because... He's fighting hard on things, you know, and he's forcing changes. He's being genuinely independent. Uh, he's occasionally putting the ACT first in terms of he can be bought off, you know, with some good stuff for his own electoral backyard, but not always. 
you know, on this IR stuff, he actually said, I'm not going to be bought off on this with, you know, little trinkets delivered to the ACT because it's an important issue for small businesses right around the country in his view. So, yeah, I, I think he's doing a really good job so far. And one of the things this IR debate has meant is that he's got very high profile. Hmm. He's right in the centre of the conversation, and that is very useful if you're an independent uh, seeking re-election in, uh, in less than three years that uh, people know who you are. Yep. And so the, the NAC, as they call it, the National Anti-Corruption Commission, looks set to pass, but uh, to the grief and dis- of many, it will still have the only in exceptional circumstances clause around public hearings. So that's that's a win. It's obviously been supported by both Labour and the uh, coalition side of, of politics. But for those who love their political life and their examination of corruption in political life, particularly to be as transparent as possible, that's a little bit underwhelming, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm, I mean, look, I'm okay about that, depending on who the commissioner is and how they end up defining exceptional circumstances for when it does or doesn't go public. I have a problem with the tarring and feathering of public hearings, where, particularly in the age we live in, where, let me put it this way, where the accusation can sometimes be enough rather than an actual finding to follow. And we've seen that in state ICACs, but we've also seen at the state level where they're completely behind closed doors, like what has happened in Victoria, that that's not satisfying to say the least. And if they're all about transparency and opening the curtains and letting the sunshine come in, well, if you're not having open hearings, there can be some downsides on that front. So it is a balance. I hope that they get the balance right, but I guess we're going to find out, aren't we? There will be plenty of people who will be quick to criticise this new Federal Integrity Commission if it doesn't get that balance right. Yes, I I do see, I, I take your point about tar and feathering. I think if people perceive that there is uh, corruption allegations that are all being dealt with and all we get is the finished result, someone isn't corrupt, or maybe we never even learned that there'd been an investigation because it's deemed that uh, if someone's cleared, then then we don't need to know about it. I think there will be a sense of dissatisfaction, but it's hard to shift because if the major parties both see their self-interest to be best reflected in secret hearings, then uh, you know it's hard to, hard to move them on that. Mm. I want to move on to another issue, I suppose, that comes down to a judgment call, and that is where we're going to set our settings ahead of the on things like inflation, interest rates, and so on, where the economy is heading, because we've heard again from the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, and I think there's been a significant little shift in what he's saying. For one thing, is that over months now, as the inflation bogey arose, the dragon came out of the lair. There's been, if you like, a kind of a narrative around it, and that is that inflation is going to peak high for a whole bunch of reasons, many of them not of our doing. We'll put up interest rates in order to slay that dragon. That will be painful. But at some point, the dragon will be slayed. Inflation will go back into the box. Interest rates can perhaps come back down a little bit. And that's the end of that, and the world moves on to other things. What we've heard from Philip Lowe is a different model altogether. And that is the expectation in his view now that inflation will not be simply a dragon to be slain once, that he sees a kind of a bouncing ball effect of inflation coming down, then bouncing back up again, interest rates leaping back up again, coming off, up, off, up, off, in the sort of way that drives mortgage holders and small business owners, one might imagine, nuts, and shows that we're in for a different kind of time than we've been for most of the last 30 years. Yeah. And and if he's proven right on that, it will be because 
the attempt to slay the dragon, there was a lot of caution around doing so, and therefore it didn't drive the economy down sufficiently to therefore you know, stabilise interest rates because you know governments don't want to put interest rates up if economies tank because you know putting them down, if anything, is the way that they try to revive those economies. So in the US, they're hoping to force a recession as a way of slaying inflation. In Australia, we aren't looking to do that. But I mean, there's, there's more pain to come. Most banks and economists think that there will be another interest rate increase in December. Then they don't sit in January. And then most banks are forecasting increases in February, March, and April, and possibly May as well. So you're going to see you know, roughly another 1% to 1.5% increase in the cash rate, which is pretty substantial in the context of how people feel. But Hugh, what I find interesting about this, before we even get to sort of the nature of some of Philip Lowe's broader comments on this and, and, and the IR bill potentially as well, where he's been sort of brought into the partisan debate to some extent, he's talking about the need to sort of tackle inflation. I'll be fascinated to see if, if the fiscal settings stay in the same gear as the monetary policy of the Reserve Bank because people are hurting and politicians have to be more aware of people's pain in the context of cost of living than a Reserve Bank governor does who's independent and appointed and doesn't quite have the same political imperatives. How it manifests between now and the budget in May next year with those rises and with where the economy is tracking, it is going to be a really difficult period. And that's before we even get to, to the point that you're making about what he's had to say, which is that it could be lumpy for many, many years to come. I do think people need to be aware of one thing that, and I've heard Peter Costello talk about this when he's done sort of speeches around the traps. People have got used to interest rates being low at an unsustainably low level. You know, like they're now coming back to what is a more normal level, even though it's been a brutal comeback because it's happening month after month not just 0.25 rises, but 0.5 rises in the mix there as well. So the brutality of the shift, as well as the sort of rhetoric, which was false, as it turns out, by Philip Lowe, that rates wouldn't go up until 2024 at the earliest. So the speed of it and the surprise of it is catching people off guard, you know, with high levels of personal debt and all the rest of it. People encouraged to get mortgages on homes when, frankly, they probably shouldn't have been, including by governments. All of that, I get that it's brutal, but it's also true that where they are going to at the moment, unless it keeps going out of control, is pretty normal. Hmm. Pretty normal rates that they're heading towards, even though they're having to go there quickly because there is an attempt to get inflation under control. And that, that is what explains the speed of it. And that's going to see some house prices, the sort of the headline house prices fall. Hmm. Absolutely. People who are forced for a whole bunch of reasons to sell properties in major cities, particularly in Sydney, are noticing the pain of that, and uh, and that tends to have a, a psychological effect, I suppose, that goes through. People talk about the the wealth effect, but people feel as if their houses are the value of their houses is going up, even though it doesn't mean anything particularly because you've until you sell your house, it's of no benefit, and even then you presumably have to buy back into the same market. But what it does is people get confidence from that and spend and and invest. Whereas uh, the reverse presumably applies, and that might be a slightly deadening effect on it, all of us over the next little while. Yeah, I mean, economically speaking, it's it, it's an interesting little wrapped up sort of set of factors that domino off one another. Interest rates go up, and inflation means that household goods and other goods are going up as well. That combination, and rents go up when interest rates go up because it gets passed on to renters. So 
that mix means that people have to spend more on their mortgage, their rent, their purchasing of basic goods. That means that they spend less on other things as a consequence. When people start spending less on other things, that has an economic effect. That economic effect can result in the businesses which rely on consumer spending, therefore needing to lay people off potentially because they have to contract to meet the contracting demand for their products. That then leads to unemployment. Higher unemployment leads to people no longer being able to tough it out like they were hoping to do and hold on to their home. So they have to downsize, sell, and then that has its own in turn negative effect back again on consumers and on it rolls. It's a, a tumbling weed which can get out of control. And that's it getting out of control on, on the downside for people. It can also get out of control on the other side, can't it? If, if governments you know, pull the levers too strongly one way or the other. Yes, it's a, it's a razor's edge that you have to, you have to work on. And just uh, on the subject of how people keep up with that, we're seeing on Friday nurses in Western Australia going out on strike. 800 surgeries have had to be cancelled. Police in WA are calling on industrial action. I point to those simply because they're just emblematic and we'd like to not forget our friends in WA, but it's emblematic of a mood across the country that wages, the kind of the anger, frustration over, over wage, wages being retarded is a real thing. It's plainly what the government is trying to you know, make some moves with, with this IR bill. But even with all that going through, industrial action, people's wages in the short term are not going to match inflation. And so, you know, there's that sense of disquiet of what's in it for me? Why do I feel poorer than I used to? Why are things seeming so desperate? That becomes a kind of a tone which challenges Jim Chalmers as the treasurer. Will he be what the economists want a treasurer to be? Let the balloon deflate, even though it's painful for many people? Or will he be what, particularly as an election comes closer, many voters want him to be? And that is someone who finds some lollies in the jar somewhere to help them through life. And the problem with that, of course, is that if, he, if he's too profligate to try to help people overcome the pain of what's happening with cost of living, then he can make a bad situation worse. That's, in a sense, what the RBA governor was warning. You can minimise the extent of that by targeting, and well, firstly, by being a little bit stingy in what you provide, but also by being highly targeted with it. But of course, the problem, as we know, is that the people who need the support the most to overcome the cost of living pressures of higher inflation are the people who will instantly spend what they get, and therefore it has the highest inflationary effect when you give it to them. So it is a total catch-22. And you know, there's nothing fun about this, but the only way out of this is there's no way out of this without pain, I guess is my point. And politicians can't put it as frankly as this, which is why I'm happy not to be in politics, Hugh, but whether people like it or not, if there is some green shoots out the other side of the tough times ahead, whether it's high inflation or whether they bury the economy into recession or whether they find a nice halfway house, any which way you slice and dice it, people are going to be poorer relative to today tomorrow, next year, and the year after because of what we are going through. And it is going to be bloody tough for a lot of people, even if all the policymakers get it absolutely right, we will still be worse off in a few years' time than we are now or that we were in a few years ago. And then the only hope, though, is that the way that they manufacture that, we can then rebound out of it to get back on that sort of ladder of improved standards of living in the aftermath of that. 
So by inference, I think what you're saying is that even though Anthony Albanese famously rose up in public housing, the son of a, of a solo mum, you get the impression Jim Chalmers wants to be orthodox, you know, imaginative, but orthodox economically as a, as a treasurer, especially at this stage of his career. He doesn't want to be one of those guys who's seen as having pulled all the levers like some sort of frantic, out-of-control person trying to make things better and making things worse. So if he maintains his discipline and be stingy, to use your word, this Labour leadership pairing, who know through Albanese better than most what it is to struggle for a bit of coin, are going to essentially let us suffer, or particularly let the poorer people in Australia suffer. Yeah, they're in a tough spot. I mean, they can preside rather than reform, but preside in a sort of incremental and what you might call responsible way, which would, you know, upset the likes of Paul Keating, for example, but would still be responsible government, even if it's not traditional reforming Labor government. And if they do that, they're in a tough bind because people will find things get tough and it's harder for people no matter what, right? No matter how much they try to do little bits here and there to help the people who need the help the most, right? Jim Chalmers is a Logan boy from Queensland. You know, he doesn't want to be stingy, but he also doesn't want to be economically irresponsible. I also worry, though, that that scenario is what they're most likely to do, the one that Paul Keating wouldn't be satisfied with. I think that's where they're most likely to go, because I don't see either Albo or Jim Chalmers as either philosophically agreeing with, nor even if they had a philosophical sympathy for, for reform, having the guts to go down the path of major economic reform. Because if you do that, it will make things better out the other side, but it probably gets worse before it gets better. You've got to have the political skills to sell it. You've got to have the passion to believe in it. And I don't reckon those guys are prepared to go down that path. Then they're no Paul Keating, I guess, is my point. And I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I will be wrong. Economic reform means tax reform, and tax reform means big fights that uh, are generally lost. But that's for another conversation. <laughs> PVO, great to talk to you, and uh, we'll see you on the other side of the Victorian election. Yeah, we'll analyse whether we were right or wrong in some of our prognosis of it. <laughs> <laughs> see you then. Take care. See ya. You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.